The House is in what it calls committee work days schedule this week, which means there will be no floor votes until Monday, July 19th, a week from tomorrow. The Senate, on the other hand, will return tomorrow and stay in session through Thursday. Two weeks ago in the House, the House came back to work on Monday, June 28th, and immediately took up and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House considered the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 2662, the Inspector General Independence and Empowerment Act, H.R. 3005, directing the Joint Committee on the Library to replace certain statues in the Capitol, H.R. 3684, the Invest in America Act, and H.R.E.S. 503, establishing a select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Then the House passed a motion to suspend the rules and pass certain bills and agree to certain resolutions. Then the House passed another bill under suspension. And then the House considered H.R. 2662, the IG Independence and Empowerment Act. After considering two amendments, one of which was agreed to, the House passed the bill by a vote of 221 to 182. Then the House took up H.R. 3005 to remove statues of Confederate heroes and others from the Capitol. That bill passed by a vote of 285 to 120. On Wednesday, June 30, the House took up H.R.E.S. 503 to establish a select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The resolution passed by a vote of 222 to 190, with two Republicans, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, crossing party lines. Then the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 3684 to authorize funds for federal aid highways, highway safety programs, and transit programs, and other purposes. The rule passed. Then the House took up the underlying bill. After considering a number of amendments, of which five were agreed to, on Thursday, July 1, the House passed the bill as amended by a vote of 221 to 201. And then they were done. So the House is not in session this week. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow. They will resume consideration of the nomination of Uzra Zaya to be Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. At 5.30 p.m., there will be a roll call vote on cloture on her nomination. In addition, the majority leader has filed cloture on the nomination of Julie A. Suit to be Deputy Secretary of the Department of Labor. Now to the Corrupt Politicians Act. Sometimes Democrats just won't take no for an answer. These days, they are determined to find a way to pass H.R. 1, the Corrupt Politicians Act. Despite the fact that they failed to get 60 votes in the Senate for the motion to proceed, they have not given up. Last week, President Biden and Vice President Harris met at the White House with so-called civil rights leaders to discuss how they could find a way past a Senate filibuster. The assembled leaders presented two ideas, either find a way to use the reconciliation process to pass the bill, because remember, under the reconciliation process, the filibuster is not in play, or create some kind of constitutional carve-out for the filibuster on legislation that deals with the Constitution. Biden said he'd like to see more details on their suggestion for a constitutional carve-out. Following the meeting, a Politico reporter checked in with Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, the House Democrats' third-ranking leader, and the South Carolina political leader whose endorsement of Joe Biden in the days before the critical South Carolina primary, when Biden had just lost three primaries in a row and was on the verge of withdrawing from the race, is widely credited with winning the primary and then the nomination itself for Biden. Clyburn said Biden should make clear that he supports amending the Senate filibuster. Biden could, quote, pick up the phone and tell Joe Manchin, hey, we should do a carve out. 
Clyburn went on to say, I don't care whether he does it in a microphone or on the telephone. Just do it. Biden will give a speech Tuesday in Philadelphia on his administration's actions to protect the sacred constitutional right to vote, in the words of the White House press office. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the speech will not be about the legislative process, but about what she called the moral obligation to defend the right to vote. Now to Supreme Court decisions. On Thursday, July 1, the Supreme Court released two rulings of great interest. The first, in the case of Brnovich versus DNC, was an election law case that tested whether or not two provisions of Arizona election law violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The first provision prohibited voters from casting ballots on Election Day outside their assigned precincts. The second provision prohibited ballot harvesting. The court ruled 6-3 to three to uphold the state's laws. In the second case, Americans for Prosperity v. Bonta, the court, also by 6-3, to three, upheld the right to privacy of donors to charitable organizations so resoundingly expounded in the fabled 1958 NAACP v. Alabama case. Now to a select committee for January 6th. Speaker Pelosi was not at all happy that Senate Republicans used a filibuster to block passage of a bill to establish a commission to investigate the events of January 6th. Consequently, she moved a resolution to establish a select committee of the House to investigate. And when it passed, she appointed Congressman Benny Thompson, who already serves as chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, to lead it. That's an interesting choice. Congressional select committees of this type are supposed to be fact-finding exercises. In this case, the speaker has chosen as the leader of the fact-finding committee a man who believes he already knows the facts of January 6th. How do we know? Because he sued President Trump, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and Rudy Giuliani just for good measure. Thompson's suit claims that Trump and the others, quote, conspired to incite an assembled crowd to march upon and enter the capital of the United States for the common purpose of disrupting, by the use of force, intimidation, and threat, the approval by Congress of the count of votes cast by members of the Electoral College as required by Article 2, Section 1 of the United States Constitution, end quote. So, under Chairman Benny Thompson, we'll have the verdict first and the facts to be established later. Most of the reporting and commentary since the vote Wednesday has focused on House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and what he will or won't do regarding appointing members to the select committee. Under the terms of the resolution, Speaker Pelosi is allowed to choose the chairman and appoint eight of the committee's 13 members. McCarthy may appoint, may appoint as many as five. Pelosi threw a curveball at McCarthy by announcing that one of her appointees would be Congresswoman Liz Cheney who recently lost her position as the third-ranking House Republican leader because of her insistence on damning all things Trump. In Pelosi's mind, that would bring the balance of the committee's membership to seven Democrats and six Republicans, assuming McCarthy appoints five members. Pelosi retains the right to approve or veto McCarthy's selections. So even though they've both said they would like to serve on the select committee, don't look for either Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates to serve. Some people are suggesting McCarthy should refuse to appoint any Republicans to the panel to make it as clear as can possibly be that this is a partisan exercise. I disagree. I think it's already clear this is a partisan exercise simply because of the balance of the committee membership and the fact that Pelosi has veto power over McCarthy's appointees. Perhaps more importantly, I think there are things we should look at regarding the events of January 6th, like 
just what kind of orders were coming from the speaker's office in the days leading up to January 6th. I'd like to know more about the conversations between the Capitol Police and the speaker's office about the intelligence they had and the threat assessments they made. I'd like to know more about conversations between the speaker's office and the office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The point is, there are legitimate questions that conservatives have about what happened on January 6th. If McCarthy doesn't appoint serious Republicans to the select committee, I don't know how we're going to get them asked. The Justice Department isn't asking. They're just prosecuting. Congressional committees in the House and Senate, both controlled by the Democrats, aren't asking. So maybe, just maybe, this select committee offers House Republicans an opportunity for someone to look into these legitimate areas of inquiry that, to date, have been overlooked. Stay tuned. Now to the Pennsylvania election audit. On Wednesday of last week, Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano of Franklin County, who serves as chairman of the state Senate's Intergovernmental Operations Committee, announced that he had requested election data from several Pennsylvania counties as the first step in what he called a forensic investigation of last year's primary and general elections, saying that millions of Pennsylvanians have serious doubts about whether or not President Biden carried the state. The state senator said he had given the counties until July 31 to respond to his data requests. In response to his critics, who claim he is merely carrying water for former President Trump, Mastriano said he's not trying to change the outcome of the contest in Pennsylvania. Quote, this investigation is not about overturning the results of either election, he said. The goals are to restore faith in the integrity of our system confirm the effectiveness of existing legislation on the governance of elections and identify areas for legislative reform. Now to Hunter Biden headaches continued, hold my beer, Picasso, edition. On Thursday, the Washington Post reported that the White House ethics team has reached agreement with the New York Art Gallery on just how to handle the sale of Hunter Biden's apparently vast trove of expensive paintings. Mind you, this is not a collection of art that he has gathered over the years as he's jetted around the world on the taxpayer's dime. No, this is a collection of paintings, and presumably not just finger paintings, that he has painted himself and expects to sell for prices that may reach half a million bucks per canvas. The question, of course, is how could you allow the president's son to sell a collection of things for which the value, and therefore the price, is so deeply subjective without having to fear that some nefarious person somewhere might scheme to obtain favors from the Biden administration by paying a ridiculously overinflated price for a Hunter Biden painting just to put money in the Biden bank account, especially given that the New York Post, still breaking news on the contents of Hunter's laptop going on a year after the original revelations, recently carried a report indicating that emails and text messages on the laptop contained conversations in which Hunter reveals that he has paid for upkeep of his father's home and that his father expects his son to hand over half his salary. Well, of course, the answer would be disclosure, full and open transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant and all that. Ensure that all transactions are 100% out in the open so we can see whom the buyer is and what he or she agreed to pay. Then we can track his or her dealings with the Biden administration and see just what favors the purchase of the artwork bought. So that's what the Biden administration ethics people announced, right? Wrong. Instead, the agreement they worked out calls for exactly the opposite. No disclosure at all. The agreement says the New York Gallery will sell Hunter's art to undisclosed purchasers for undisclosed prices. That way, they say, 
No one in the Biden administration will know that the guy who just walked into their office asking for a favor greased the wheels by paying half a mil to the Biden housing fund. Of course, in order for that plan to work, no purchaser will ever hang one of Hunter's paintings on his or her living room wall and have politically connected friends over to gaze at it with appropriate awe. No purchaser will ever have a conversation with anyone associated with anyone named Biden, and no one will ever whisper in any Biden's ear, hey, you know, I'm the one who bought Hunter's lilies on canvas for half a mil, right? The fact of the matter is both Hunter and his father will know within relatively short order who bought the artwork and what they paid for it. The only people who will not know are we, the public. Ethics czars from previous administrations have criticized the arrangement for the obvious reasons. And what do art critics who have seen Hunter's work say? Just how good is this art? One described it as, quote, generic post-zombie formalism illustration, unquote. While another said, quote, I would call it very much a hotel art aesthetic. It's the most anonymous art I can imagine. It's somewhere between a screensaver and if you just Googled mid-century abstraction and mashed up whatever came up, unquote. I don't know if we should stay tuned on this one. Sooner or later, the mainstream media, which fell in line right behind big tech on censoring all New York Post coverage of Hunter Biden's laptop last year, is going to decide Hunter is a legitimate subject of investigation and reporting. I just don't know if they've reached that point yet. Finally, Tucker Carlson commentary. Friday evening, Fox News host Tucker Carlson spent seven minutes in his opening monologue reading a long tweet thread explaining what's got Trump supporters so upset about the November election and what's happened since. It's about the best single seven-minute explanation I've seen. I commend it to your attention. If you haven't seen it yet, you'll find a link in the suggested reading. The link is to a 34-minute YouTube clip. It is identified on the link as go to the 19-minute mark to see the start of the seven-minute tweet thread. And that's our Washington report for this week.